welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast, part of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is your online and audio destination for the very best interviews with blockbuster authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. Today's episode is a special one. We honored Holocaust Remembrance Day with a visit from musician and debut author Janet Horvath, who compiled her fascinating and little-told family history into a book called The Cello Still Sings, A Generational Story of the Holocaust and the Transformative Power of Music. I was working as the -the behind-the-scenes producer for this one when the interview went live, and I don't mind telling you that this is the first time I found myself neglecting my producer duties because I was too busy listening and crying. So when it came time to choose episodes for season eight, this one was a no-brainer. I sincerely hope this podcast will help more people find this book and hear this remarkable story. Janet spoke with New York Times best-selling author Jenna Blum, who interviewed Holocaust survivors for the Spielberg Survivors of the Shoah Foundation and wrote about the Holocaust in her novels, Those Who Save Us and The Lost Family. So settle in and enjoy the incredibly moving conversation as I pass the blaze torch to Jenna and her multi-talented guest, Janet Horvath. Hey, everybody. Welcome to A Mighty Blaze. I'm Jenna Blum, one of the co-founders of The Blaze. And today I have with me a very special guest in honor of Holocaust Remembrance Day, accomplished cellist and author Janet Horvath. Welcome, Janet. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here today. We are honored to have you. And you're joining us, I know, from beautiful, sunny, warm, tropical Minnesota. Yeah, it's tropical. 35 degrees today. today. I mean, that's bikini (laughs) weather in... Yeah, basically. No. All right. Well, for those of you who are new to The Blaze, welcome. We are a team of 35 creative professional volunteers dedicated to helping writers reach readers in the age of COVID, Delta, Omicron, whatever the world throws at us. And now as the world opens back up beyond bringing you your favorite authors in your living room, you don't even have to wear pants to enjoy The Blaze. So. Mm Welcome. And if you like what you see here, give us a like or a follow on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube. We are ubiquitous. And this is a new thing. And my whole like Blaze fam is like hitting themselves in the head right now. But if you're watching us on YouTube, there's a little heart button beneath the interview box. And if you want to say thanks for the interview, you can smash that little heart um, and give us a donation if you feel like it. So that's a brand new thing. Very proud of that. Um, Hi, Gail. Welcome for joining us today. And um, if you want to, please consider subscribing to our newsletter, which is www.amightyblaze.com. So you'll never have literary FOMO ever again. No more FOMO. Nobody likes that. Mm -hmm. Now, without further ado, I would love to talk with Janet about her beautiful book, The Cello Still Sings, a memoir. Janet, do you mind holding up your gorgeous book for us? (laughs) love thank you stereo (laughs) yes oh my gosh what does it feel like to well i'll ask you this in a minute but first i'm going to read your bio but i want to know what it feels like to hold your beautiful baby in 
your hands and your accomplished hands. So just so you know who we're talking to, Janet Horvath was born in Toronto, Canada, a lifelong performing classical musician, soloist, author, speaker, and educator. She was the Minnesota Orchestra's associate principal cello player from 1980 to 2012. That is quite an impressive tenure. The first book, Playing Less Hurt, which is also her moniker on social media, in case you want to follow Janet on Instagram and on Twitter. An Injury Prevention Guide for Musicians won a gold medal from the 2009 Independent Publisher Awards. Her recent publications include New York Times, The Atlantic, National and International Music Journals, and Janet has appeared on CBC, BBC, and NPR radio stations and PBS television, and is a popular guest speaker on podcasts. Her numerous music articles are featured on www.interlude.hk. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We're really happy you're here. You have been out on tour quite a bit, and touring is not a new thing for a musician, of course, but how does it feel to be on tour as an author? It feels wonderful, especially because unlike for music, when you play a concert, you prepare for a year and you play a concert and people clap, there's applause. And for a book, you put it out in the world and then you're wondering, well, what if people don't like it? And what's the re reaction going to be? And to have the audience give me such wonderful feedback is humbling. Yeah. Oh, good. Tell us about some of the feedback you've gotten for the cello still sings. And again, you guys, like, you should buy this. If you love music, if you love books, if you love memoir, if you love humor, if you are interested in Holocaust era stories and generational saga and trauma, you should buy this book. What has your feedback been like so far? Well, it does read like a mystery story. So I begin the book with the clue that my father unwittingly drops on me because my parents never spoke about what their experiences were. And so um, I unravel the story as I unravel it for myself and dig into archives and find paperwork and documents and, and things that you know just fell into my lap. And this was the last year of my father's life, although I didn't know that then. Um, so I got the story just weeks before my father passed away. Um, so many of the people that have read it have said, oh, you know, I just couldn't put it down. And it was a, a story as if you're telling me in my own living room and it's very personal and I'm moving. And that's so heartening, isn't it? When that happens with the book. Yes, it's very gratifying. When you were speaking about the long preparation for a performance, I was thinking it's not that different from writing a book, which takes most of us, you know, a year, three years, 20 years, you know, five years, as long as it takes, right? But you do often have that lag time between putting your book out into the world and receiving the feedback. So I'm very glad you've been able to go out and connect with your audiences. Can you tell us, for those who haven't yet been gripped by the cello still sings, um, what the book is about? Give us a, a elevator pitch, if you would. So the cello still sings covers my career and there's lots of anecdotes about auditions and, and competitions and being a young child and having your parent force you to practice and everything. But it traces my father's career and 
I have numerous threads throughout. So I hope that one of those threads draws the audience in, whether it's the music, it's the cello, it's history, it's the Holocaust, or it's being a second generation of families that might have experienced trauma and to understand how people were so resilient and how they put their lives back together again. How did they do that, you know, after that? And so we have plenty of statelessness now and displacement, and perhaps there's a lesson here for how to view empathetically people who are struggling right now. I love that description. Thank you. It's such a brave thing to write, it seems to me. And as somebody who interviewed survivors of the Holocaust for the Steven Spielberg Survivors of the Holocaust Shoah Foundation, um, I often thought um, when we were doing interviews, it was mostly about the survivor's life beforehand, which had been obviously wiped out, um, and then about their experience because we were collecting historical testimony for preservation. And then we would spend a little bit of time on how the survivor emigrated. Sometimes people would talk about you know, learning English by watching TV or going to the movies or how they had met their spouse. But we didn't spend that much time on it. And I always wondered about the rebuilding um, of lives, especially among people who had lost everything that a person has to lose. Like, how do you gather your courage in both hands and move forward? And so I think this is such an important book and in such an important testimony in itself. How did you come up with the idea for the story? I mean, it's a memoir, so it's obviously lived experience, but what was the first moment you thought, oh, I can and should write this? I think it was how I begin the book. Uh, I had little snippets of stories. I Sometimes, you know, when you're a, a child of survivors, you're not sure if they ever blurted out these memories or if you read them or if somebody whispered them into your ears. Um, it was fragments that it was difficult to put together. And when I happened to be driving my father to a doctor's appointment. He was 87 years old. It was a yucky, slushy January day. And I'm, you know, driving. And, and I realized that the best way to, to have a chat with my father, who could be a difficult person sometimes to, mm. to be natural with, I didn't know he had PTSD, obviously, mm. which is what we would call it today. And he loved to talk shop. And my father had played with all the most famous maestros in Europe as a very young man, but I'd never asked him if he played with one of my idols. And I just thought, okay, I'll talk shop. Dad, did you ever play with Leonard Bernstein? The famous maestro wrote West Side Story and conducted the New York, uh, the New York Philharmonic for many, many, many years. And it was as if he passed out. I, I like I was driving and I thinking, what should I do? Should I pull over? He put his hand to his cheek and his eyes seemed to roll back into his head. And I thought, oh, I better pull over. And then he it was as if, as if he came to and he said, yes, it was a very hot day. It was in the displaced persons camp in the Jewish orchestra. And he was just a kid and he played Rhapsody in Blue, and it was fantastic. And I talked to him, and I said, I want to come to America. And then the memory 
disappeared before I even got my tongue around asking it a million questions I had going through my mind, like, what were you doing in Germany? And did you have an instrument? How did you get an instrument and the strength to play? And was my mother there? And all these questions. And he either he wasn't willing to talk anymore or he the memory left him. So I went racing to Google that night and looked up Leonard Bernstein's website. And sure enough, there it was that he conducted a Jewish orchestra, survivors of the Holocaust. And I imagined an orchestra this, you know, the size of the Minnesota Orchestra, 100 members. But it was 17 members. My father was one of two cellists. And he came to the largest displaced persons camp in Bavaria, which was in Lundsberg, which is near Munich. There were 5,000 displaced people and army personnel who attended this concert. And I, I Googled some more and discovered that there had been a printed program and it was donated to a museum um, in New York, the Museum of Jewish Heritage. And I wrote them immediately. I said, my father was in this orchestra and, you know, uh, I would love to see the program. And they wrote me right back and said, yes, make an appointment the next time you're in New York, please um, come and see. We'll show it to you gladly. It's in our archives. But don't you want to see the live video testimony and the photographs? <laughs> At which point I started screaming, you know, um, and sure enough, they actually had these teeny tiny black and white photographs from 1948 and there was my father with a full head of hair and a mustache standing next to Leonard Bernstein who also was in his 20s at the time and not ever realized well I, I didn't know this story but I don't think anybody knew this story um, and it deserved some recognition as it turns out my father didn't play two concerts he played two with Leonard Bernstein but he played 200 concerts from 1946 to 1948. This small group of musicians were bussed all over Bavaria in the American zone to bring morale boosting programs to those people still languishing in the camps, waiting for news of loved ones, waiting for paperwork to leave Europe. So that's a story I felt like needed to be told. Absolutely. And we're getting so many audience comments. Lynn, Christina, hi, Gail. Also, like um, Christina said, incredible backstory. Lynn said, I'm getting goosebumps. I also literally had goosebumps and was going to stick my arm into the camera, but I decided <laughs> that would be rude. But I really, I really did. And, and I totally agree. Again, like the DP camps, the displaced persons camps, like people forget that um, survivor stories don't end when they're liberated or when the death march stops or when they're discovered as hidden children or um, what we typically think of as the conclusion of their stories, that you are a person who has been completely displaced in the world and maybe lost your entire family and friends and network of cousins, uncles, aunts, grandparents, just your whole context is ripped away. So to be continued to be um, housed in camps and, um, healing physically and emotionally when hopes like this kind of shred of hope that your father and these musicians offered is really amazing. I want to ask when I was interviewing survivors, we were not allowed to have their families in the same room or even in the house because survivors like your parents often would not talk about their experiences. 
ever until we interviewed them for the project. That was actually a commonality among survivors. And if they knew that their families were in the vicinity, they would stop talking altogether out of right. compartmentalizing or out of survivor guilt. Or there were a number of reasons, but there are very few survivors who were very open about their pre-America lives. And the children um, who were adult children would talk to me sometimes afterwards, like in the kitchen, like they would be bought on screen at the very end of interviews to be with their survivor parent or grandparent. And um, the children would cry, the grandchildren would cry, the videographer would cry, I would cry. And the only one who wouldn't cry usually was the survivor as if to say, look what I built. Like, you know, we were supposed to be exterminated and I built a family. And so now I'm getting a little <laughs> teary thinking about it. But I often would, after that experience, talk to the families in the kitchens or the living rooms. And the children often said, I know that my parents went through something so horrific. And yet the shape of that, although defining my life, has never been bought into focus. And I don't know what the story actually is. How did you feel discovering that clue if your parents never spoke of what they went through? Like, what did it feel like to you as a survivor's child? I thought it was a, a window, an opening that I finally could enter, that I could tangibly find in archives and everything. And then because I was able to get there to New York and, and actually have copies of these photographs, and, and uh, as it turned out, there was a documentary done too. And my father was in the movie in still pictures. Um, so I blew up these little tiny black and whites into poster size, and I took them to Toronto to show my father, hoping that he wouldn't yell at me. I mean, I wasn't sure if he would be uh, pained, if he would be angry, if he would be receptive, if he would remember other members of this small group. And, you know, I was really holding my breath as he looked at the um, the pictures with his bottle top glasses, you know, and, and then he looked up and he said, here, here is Arbeitman, David Arben. He changed his name to Arben. He was in the Philadelphia Orchestra as if it was his own personal accomplishment. And my enthusiasm for finding these artifacts had an effect on my father. I didn't understand yet at that time, but late at night, his caregiver started telling me that my father was scribbling and he could hardly write at that point. He had Parkinson's and it was a tiny scrawl. And he says, I don't know why, what he's doing, but he's scribbling. And so a few weeks later, it was August of 2009. And instead of meeting me at the elevator and giving me noisy smooches all over my face, the door was open and he didn't meet me at the door. And I came in and he was sitting with these papers with dark scrawl on it. And he was very formal. And he said, Janet came, you sit down. I'm re reading this to you. And I, I sat down. I thought, what could this be? You know, more bills to pay or letters to write for him or whatever. And it, he starts in Hungarian saying, and I, I understand Hungarian, speak it. And he says, here, I will tell you my testimony. And I said, oh, dad, just wait a second. Could I grab my computer? Let me, you know, just write it down. And I started trying to translate on the spot. 
And he's reading for the very first time what actually happened to him when he was taken away for slave labor in the copper mines of Bor, Yugoslavia, where a lot of Hungarian men were taken. And my 10-year-old Hungarian um, vocabulary didn't include words like lynching poles, gravel pits, uh, wheelbarrows, you know, that sort of thing. And a couple of times I said, Dad, how do you spell that? What does that mean? And he said, why are you interrupting me every second, you know? And, and then I realized, okay, I just need to sound the words out and look them up later. And I'm busy translating on the spot. And it was his testimony. And he passed away six weeks later. Yeah. What an incredible gift you gave to each other, I would say, that you allowed him that release by finding the clue and bringing it to him and that he gave you his story. When he, first I wanted to ask just how old was he when he was taken to the copper mines and what was sort of the basic shape of that experience, if you could outline that for your audience. He was 24 or five when he was taken. Um, What's interesting and what a lot of people don't necessarily know is that um, Hungary was an ally to Germany. And for that reason, the Hungarian Jewish people were relatively protected until very late in the war. Of course, there had been a thousand years of anti-Semitism and foreign Jews who weren't Hungarian were already rounded up but Budapest still had 800,000 Hungarian Jews um, who were protected by the premier at the time. And as the story goes, Hitler started getting impatient with that. He wanted those Jewish people, to uh, the last large population in Europe that was remaining in 1944, he wanted to take care of those Jews. And as it turned out, Horty resisted, who was the premier, and therefore Hitler invaded and kidnapped Horty's son and you know, did all kinds of terrible things. So um, they invaded in March of 1944 and things escalated extremely quickly in Hungary where just like in other places, they had to start wearing the star, they had to move into yellow star houses in a ghetto, they were restricted from going to shops, um, Jewish businesses were closed, uh, you know, but they were able, Eichmann, the um, henchman, the person behind the final solution, went personally to Budapest and 12,500 people on good days were transported to Auschwitz each day um, between March and July, August. And so my father, thought that being deported to Bor, Yugoslavia, the copper mine, was a life sentence, a death sentence. But it turned out that um, he was on the last train that didn't go to Auschwitz. And because he was able to work. So people thought, my mother thought that, oh, I can work. I'm, you know, this could never happen in Hungary, but if they want me, to, you know, I can show them I can work. They didn't yet know what was going on. Mm -hmm. And they thought, 
oh, you know, if young girls, pretty, especially pretty ones, were married, maybe the Nazis wouldn't take them away. And so my parents got married the night before my father was deported and, and with false papers saying they were Catholic. And my mother was only 17. Mm -hmm. yeah. That is amazing. Yes, Gail put a comment in the chat that it's an amazing story. All of the survivor stories are, they really are amazing. Every single one of them is a miracle. It's a miracle anybody survived any of it, let alone then built a happy and prosperous and stable life in the aftermath. Did your mother ever speak of her experience? My mother never, ever spoke about it. My father, we could sense the PTSD, which I can define now, but, you know, my father would cry at night sometimes. And, and I knew other fathers didn't cry like he did. My mother never showed any kind of um, emotion as far as her past. She looked forward. She was strong. She was the, you know, the boss and took care of our family. And so she, she also never, ever spoke about it, not even to her best friend, who had been in Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. yeah. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hey folks, this is Daniel Paisner, host of As Told To, the ghostwriting podcast, available here on the Writer's Bone Podcast Network and Wherever podcasts are sold, we feature long-form conversations with ghostwriters and collaborators of all sizes and stripes, taking what we hope is a meaningful look at the making and shaping of some of our best-selling memoirs and autobiographies, with a focus on craft and process and whatnot. Actually, often a whole lot of whatnot. In the beginning, we set out to talk to some of publishing's top ghostwriters, but we've expanded the conceit of the show to include songwriters, speechwriters, joke writers, dramatists, television writers, and pretty much anyone who writes in service of someone else's voice or vision. Everybody's got a story to tell, and sometimes it just works out that they need a little bit of help. As told to, the ghostwriting podcast. Join the conversation every other Tuesday here on the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. You know, people are often surprised about this. I interviewed um, when I was working for the Shoah Foundation in Minnesota, actually, that's where I was living at the time. I was so young during those interviews that they um, assigned me to interview couples. So survivor couples who had married each other in the DP camps or before the war or after the war. Mm. And um, often the couples had not told each other the shape of their stories if they had not lived them together. And there was one couple I interviewed, the Rosenbergs in Golden Valley, Minnesota. And the wife and husband had survived and met after the war. And she had survived Auschwitz with her mother. And her husband didn't know the, wow. the scope of her story. Um, and because we did the interviews in separate rooms at separate times, mm -hmm. they may never have known. Like people just moved on. I have so many questions about this, but I also want to talk more about the, the book and the intersection of music and survival and joy. But one question I want to ask for you as 
um, the second generation is if your parents didn't talk about it, how might their behavior have come out sideways? Um, and also there's a great question from June <laughs> Benet, who is my mom's dear, dear friend. And my friend also, I'm so happy to see you today, June, about how your parents found each other after the war. So let's start there first. And then maybe you can tell me a little bit about your experience as a, as a survivor's child. My, my parents obviously didn't know whether they survived each other, you know, each survived. I think my father had a, photograph of my mother that he kept in, you know, by his chest and protected so much. And I think that love and that determination to go back to his bride, who he barely got to know, um, was one of the things that kept him alive. Um, he was liberated by Serbian partisans mm -hmm. and he walked barefoot from or Yugoslavia to Hungary. And you know, I, I, when I discovered that, I was looking at him like, here we are, two kids who imagined that their father, you know, he cried at night. Maybe he was a bit of a wimp and a weakling. And I just had a complete new um, respect for him and, and uh, looked at him differently. So he had known that he couldn't go beyond the border of Budapest at that time. And um, it was 1945, but at the end, very end, Christmas time of 1944 and five, Budapest was surrounded and it was a, a brutal siege where there was street fighting and Hitler had indicated, you know, keep Budapest at all costs, don't let it fall. And so, the Allies were bombing the city. The Germans were, you know, in, you know, holding the city. And there was street fighting with the Russians, you know, closing in on the city. Um, who knows how people survived that? I have no idea how my mother um, was able to hide in bombed basements under coal and lumber, starving. Um, so my father didn't know that she might have survived or his, his mother. And when they he finally was, uh, heard that Budapest was liberated, he made his way there on cargo trains. And, and at the time, obviously, we didn't have the kind of communication that, that they, ha they didn't have then. But also, the infrastructure was gone. Everything was bombed. So the Red Cross and the United Nations Relief Organization and the Joint Distribution Committee divided up the city and were trying to put up bulletin boards with notes and people wrote, you know, I'm, you know, here I am, you know, come see me. And, and my father saw there was a note, George Horvath, we're in the Jewish ghetto and we're, you know, we're still alive. And that's how he found them. Um, my, my grandmother had worked, was a, um, essential worker because she was working in a leather factory that made boots for the Germans. And so he made his way there and found his mother and she knew where my mother was. That is such an amazing story. It's like finding somebody from a post-it after 9-11 out of a million post-its, the sort of right. comprehensibility of how people managed to find each other in those years when all of Europe was an anthill that had been kicked apart. So drastically. It's just 
mind boggling. Ava says, Ava, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. I'm in the midst of reading Janet's book. It's a very moving story, beautifully written and very well researched. It's very difficult to put the book down and these stories must be told so it will never happen again. Could not agree more. And I wonder, Janet, do you, like in the recent years, we've heard a lot about, you know, fake news and um, these, the Holocaust is just a propaganda and a rumor. I mean, things that I, as a survivor interviewer, thought I would never, ever hear in my lifetime and then got a heaping plateful of, what do you say to revisionists, quote unquote, who claim that this never happened? And is that part of the reason that you wanted to write this book? It is definitely part of the reason. And I'm glad you brought that up because in the back, I spent a lot of time making a Nazi euphemism dictionary. So not only do I include though, the Nazi fake news propaganda words or words that they used to hide what they were doing, but I weave in current euphemisms that we're using like fake news, like propaganda. And some of the words actually originated from that time. And so I feel that, I hope that it makes an impact for people to see that, you know, it's a slippery slope and it can happen gradually where the truth is questioned and then we don't know what to believe. And then, you know, when you label somebody as other, then it's very easy, well, comparatively easy to feel justified at doing anything to them when they are dehumanized. And I think, sadly, the Holocaust wasn't a lesson enough. I mean, there are so many genocides that have occurred since then. And I wanted to bring this forward to people so that they can see that um, that it's it's continuing to go on. What should we be doing about that? Such profound questions. You used the phrase "final solution" before, and um, Adolf Eichmann was the author of the "final solution." But that in itself is such a a euphemism, an Orwellian euphemism of the sort that you're talking about that has now seeped into our modern language as well. So mm-hmm. I'm really glad that you said that. And the final solution is basically murder. And so even calling it genocide sounds a little bit airbrushed in some ways, but like it's the murder of, of millions of people. And so I'm glad that you're calling this out. Sometimes when I'm speaking about my first book, which is about the Holocaust era, people say, well, what can we do? I'm only one person. You know, what can we do so that it never happens again? I feel really hopeless. I feel really helpless. I feel like the cello still sings is an answer to that. Like you have lifted up your torch in this book and your bow, but what is your answer to that for your audience? If people read this and think, but I'm just one person, what can I do? The thing that spurred me on to speak out, you know, um, maybe is this is a whole other subject, but it was ingrained in me as a child to never say we were Jewish. Mm-hmm. My mother was convinced that if we didn't um, hide it, that we could easily be hated and then, you know, 
taken away. We were taught Hungarian Christian prayers. I mean, it was really, I didn't realize it until, you know, I was an adult. Um, so for me to speak out openly has been an issue. It's been something that I've had to force myself to do in many ways. I still hesitate because I, as I said, it's ingrained in me that there should be fear about saying that. And so now that I have the book, I feel that it's not only my obligation, but it's my responsibility to be the living witness now and to show people that, that those of us whose parents went through this, we feel responsible for living for those who didn't to accomplish things that they couldn't and um, to, to speak out, even though the third generation in some cases knows more of the story than, than we did when we were growing up. So much is cloaked for the second generation. That's a beautiful answer. Uh, and I think that the second generation inherits so much of the first generation's PTSD and trauma and all of the things that are not said and all of the strange kind of maybe sideways habits that affect your growing up and the third generation kind of can reset the dials. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm thinking about what you said about, about hiding the fact that you're Jewish. And those of us who are like blondies, you know, like my mom was um, half German and half Norwegian and my dad was Jewish. And I often think if I had been born during the war era, I would have passed or tried to pass as a submarine with the fake papers. Um, but even now in this country, when I was growing up, I grew up in a very Jewish community in New Jersey. And I still like to this day, it's not something I walk into a room and be like, hi, I'm half Jewish. You know, it's, it's interesting. And yet um, during the years when we were hearing a lot about how the Holocaust never happened and continue to hear that, I suddenly, my agent who is Jewish was like, oh, suddenly you are a super Jew. And I'm like, I am, because I think this is so dangerous. The revisionism of history, the airbrushing of it um, is, you can't let that stand. So mm -hmm. one more thought I have about this that relates directly to your bravery in breaking that lifelong hiding, if you will, is that in Japan, um, people who do what you did with this book are called densosha, and that means the transmitters of memory. And people who interviewed survivors of Hiroshima um, and preserved their testimony about that day, the interviewers themselves consider themselves to have a moral obligation to transmit that story long after the survivors themselves are gone. And densosha means transmitter. So in writing this book, you are densosha and have accomplished your moral obligation to your parents so that's beautiful for that yeah yeah can you talk us a little bit about your music and your lifelong love of music that you inherited obviously from your dad and your tremendous talent how do you think music saved him emotionally how do you think it helped you cope with the things that you sensed but could not say Music is a is another language, and people often say how much they love the cello. the The vibrations of the cello are the closest thing to the human voice, and its dramatic range is able to express so many different emotions. So it speaks to people, 
And um, there's a thread throughout the, the book, and it is the piece by Max Bruch called Kol Nidre. On the Day of Atonement, which is what we call one of our high holidays on Yom Kippur, each year it's a day that we ask for forgiveness for wrongs we may have committed, not only to God, but to each other, to parents, to colleagues, to schoolmates, to children, to parents. And we're obligated to um, atone and try to do better this year or the coming year. And it's an ancient chant, a 5,000 year old chant that opens this sacred service. And because Max Brook, who was not Jewish, wrote this version of, of that chant for cello and piano or organ or, or, or orchestra. Um, my father played it every year in our synagogue in Toronto, Temple Sinai, and would set the tone for the holy day when he wept with that cello. And so when I came to Minnesota, I took up that mantle and have played it here in, in the Twin Cities every year also. And it's, it's, a, it's a way in to people's hearts and souls that words may not be able to get through. And I would call it my biggest compliment when people said, oh, you made me cry. And you know that's my goal. So the way my book ends, sometimes ending a book is really hard, um, as you know. I, the way the book ends, I feel like it was a gift to me that in 2018, the town of Landsberg, so the, where the displaced persons camp was, where my father performed with Leonard Bernstein, they wanted to do a 70th anniversary recreation of the program, but also a reconciliatory event mm -hmm. where they would invite Holocaust survivors, um, children of people who were in that camp, and invite the town to understand each other and speak to each other and reach out to each other. And they called me and invited me to play Kol Nidre to the very day, 70 years later, that my father played with Leonard Bernstein. And to play that piece in Germany with a youth orchestra of young German kids, and they were young, um, was absolutely, you know, mind boggling, you know, cathartic. And so that thread in my book, I feel, can also communicate in ways that I may not communicate in, in words. Music is the universal language. Mm -hmm. And the language of emotion. Lynn has asked, is there a video we can see of you playing this piece on the cello? Absolutely. You can see um, Janet playing Kol Nidre on YouTube and our producer, Trisha, will pop that link into the chat we were trying to figure out a way to bring it into the interview but it was just slightly beyond our tech skills for this but please do go check it out and also you can follow janet on instagram and on twitter and of course you should buy the book several copies of the book because it is so important to remember i have two more questions and then we'll open it up to the audience but the first question is we've talked about um, the the trauma of your parents' experiences and and the shape of that in your own life a little bit and also about music. But tell us about some of the humor in the book because the book is funny as well as being so moving. So tell us your 
favorite anecdote that you think is funny? Well, I could read the favorite anecdote, but um, I don't know if, if there's time for that. Sure. I mean, if it's 80 pages long, probably not. But if it's <laughs> short, please do. We welcome that. Let's see if I could find it quickly. This is, this is really one of my favorite stories. Uh, and it, it was uh, my very first recital in Toronto. We always love reading our on blaze. So get your popcorn, people. Okay. Mama envisioned me flamboyantly striding on stage in a long diaphanous dress clutching my cello. They eavesdropped on my practice and barked criticisms. Janet came, play it slower. That was so out of tune. Now, Janet, play it again. Count. Never missing an opportunity to show me off whenever we had visitors or any captive audience. There would be a command performance. Janet came, play that new piece. Look how musical she is. And they'd push me towards the cello. And no matter how squirmy the guests seemed, mm -hmm. but the alluring tones of the cello beckoned. I craved to learn the secrets behind its fantastic range of expression, the deep lamenting baritone, the silken tenor, the dazzling soprano. Mm -hmm. I persisted at times with bumps in the road, when I was ready for my first solo recital, my father allowed me to play his beautiful 18th century Italian cello, the instrument he had brought from Europe, a panormo hand carved with a spruce top, a striking flame maple back and a deeply textured varnish. The concert held in the Art Gallery of Ontario in 1970, a prestigious location for a 17-year-old to play, tested the performer with conditions that were far from ideal. The cavernous space was open to museum browsers and the pockmarked white marble walls created a reverberant acoustic. Audience members who had to peer around Greek style pillars ranged from curious museum attendees to music enthusiasts hoping to hear the latest wunderkind and mothers with fussy children who just wanted a chance to sit down. Warming up in a backstage room, my jitters took over. Why had I chosen to start with such a taxing work? The Bach solo suite number three in C major, a challenging masterpiece even for a seasoned performer. I forced myself to focus mentally, to inhale and exhale deeply. At the appropriate time, with a firm hold on my cello, I took one more breath, remembered to hitch up my dress so as not to trip, smiled with my teeth, as my mother would insist, mm -hmm. and waltzed across the stage, exuding confidence. Jamming my end pin, the metal spike that holds the cello, into the unyielding wooden floor, I launched into the first sea of the music. Then came a cellist nightmare, my cello careened forward out of my hands, and I only just caught it with my knees. I shoved it back into the floor with my torso, somehow not missing a beat of the music, but I didn't dare look up. My father had lurched forward in his seat, moaning audibly. <laughs> breathing eventually calmed, but he turned ashen. After the Bach, when I retired to the back room, the stage manager wheeled the piano out for the next piece. My father jumped out, out of his seat to canvas the audience. Anyone have a pocket knife? He demanded. Someone did on his keychain. Clutching the knife, my father scaled the stage, got down on all fours and dug a hole in the floor. 
Satisfied that he had prevented further equipment disasters, he returned to his seat. When I sashayed out onto the stage for my second number, I didn't see the newly gouged rug. Then, just as I was about to thrust the cello into the floor, I saw my mother flailing. Janet, she said to my complete mortification, your daddy made a hole. Your daddy made a hole. <laughs> so great. Thank you. God bless parents, right? Stage parents, and especially the dads. Like, God bless your dad digging a hole in a stage so that your cello would not fly into the audience. Thank you. That was wonderful. So people, when you buy the cello still sings, you're going to get a heaping portion of really moving, poignant stories, but you will also laugh and you will know a lot more about music than when you started. That is that is a really unusual story too. My mom used to talk a lot about stage fright. She was a concert pianist and talked about how when you come out on stage, your hands shake from adrenaline. And I also played as a child and said, well, what do you do? What do you do about that? And she said, just sit, you know, for a few minutes, seconds and wait, and it will feel like an hour, but you just let it dwindle. But nobody dug a hole for her piano. Like that is a great, that is a really good story and you must be very strong also from carrying the cello around um just quickly i'm going to ask for like a, a thumbnail of this and then we have time for like maybe two audience questions um how did you put this book together this is your second book actually and was the process of writing this different from the first and how did you assemble the stories well the first book i think i had yeah here it is mm -hmm. um this was an injury prevention guide for musicians. So it's a niche book. It's it's for musicians, but also I wrote it for doctors who wanted to treat musicians because um, now it's a, a established medical field. But in the days that I wrote it, um, it was a huge stigma to have an injury. And in fact, you thought you were not only a bad musician, but a bad person um, because our identity is so wrapped up in music. So uh, in uh, our music and our instrument. So that was um, written over much more quickly. And I did a lot of research in the medical areas and to show, but it also spends a lot of time teaching people how to sit properly, good posture, uh, taking breaks, being in shape, um, you know, not overloading your schedule so that you're overusing your body. This was a whole other <laughs> kettle of fish. Um, it took a decade. And I left the orchestra in 2010 and wanted to write this book and knew that I had no clue how to put together something as massive as this and it covers 70 years. So I did go back to university, to Hamlin University and got my MFA, hoping that, you know, the teachers would be able to support me and the, and the students would help me um, figure out what to do. We had an enormous dining room table that seats 22 and I spread the whole thing out on the table and the floor, wondering how to organize this, this um, material. And uh, I eventually decided to hearken back to my childhood with a term that is used in theater. It's, it's called an entract. And in the old days when they didn't have the technology to change scenes quickly, they would have a little 
vignette, either a ballet or a mime in front of the curtain while the set was being changed. And it sometimes was a comedy, so it was a con contrast. And um, I decided to use that as my mechanism for alerting readers that I was going back to my childhood um, to just to reflect on what I knew then and what I thought then. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, I hope that um, explains what I did, but it was, uh, it was a complicated <laughs> um, thing to try to put together. Putting together a book is always a complicated venture almost always a complicated venture and then writing a book of such bravery and also assembling, as you said, so many pieces is especially a heavy lift, I feel. So I love that you applied a musical slash performing term to the structure. You're teaching me a lot today. Mm -hmm. I think we have time for one audience question. Believe it or not, we've been chatting almost an hour. We have time for one audience question. What do you think are some ways we can all commemorate this Holocaust Remembrance Day? Great question. I think it's a great question. I think if you spend some time, if you have time to dedicate it, I would, I would really like um, each person to have a conversation with a friend, maybe someone who's different than you are, someone that you would like to get to know, um, understand their traditions that are different from yours. I think the best way to ensure that we have empathy for other people and understand different cultures is one-on-one -on -one and, and making an effort to reach out to somebody who's different than you are. That is a beautiful answer. Thank you. And actionable. So if you're wondering what can we do to prevent the spread of evil in the world, that sort of empathy and that sort of bravery and reaching out is one way. I would also say that books engender empathy um, in a way that few things do because they put the reader um, in somebody else's not only shoes, but mindset and experience. So another thing you can do is buy a book by somebody whose experience is different from yours um, and read that book. And I would highly suggest this book, obviously. Janet, do you have anything that you would like to say to your readers as a sort of a, a close? I have had people say, that, oh, I'm not religious, oh, I'm not Jewish, so, I, you know, this book may not be right for me. And I don't want to preach just to the choir. Mm -hmm. I have had people who are not Jewish who would never pick up a Holocaust book necessarily or have seen Schindler's List and that's about it. And there's always so much to learn from another person's experience. And I, I think there's things in the book that would appeal to anybody, I hope, um, that you don't have to be Jewish to read this and you don't have to be religious. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with learning how to be empathetic to others. And music again is that universal language. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for sharing your family's story, for sharing your musical story and giving us all things that we can do to commemorate this day and really to do every day to make the world a little bit better. Um, June said, beautiful interview. Love you both. We love you too, June. And thank you everybody so much for joining us today for this incredibly poignant 
really moving interview, especially you, Janet. Thank you so much for joining us. So much for having me today. Of course, our pleasure, our honor, really. Everybody see you next time on The Blaze. Thank you. Enjoy your day and remember well. Thanks for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for A Mighty Blaze Podcast. My fast-paced adventure fantasy novels, Herrick's End and Herrick's Lie, books one and two of the Neath Trilogy, are available now. Tune in next time for Season 8, Episode 9, featuring Laura Zygman. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. Mm-hmm.